0: This is episode 145 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. Today we're going to be talking about Edgar Allan Poe's short story, called The Mask of the Red Death. And I was thinking this would be appropriate. Not only is it about a uh, pandemic, which we've been featuring on our Sunday literary episodes, uh, but also it's about masks, which are causing a lot of controversy these days. I was just recently uh, struck by an edited video of a bunch of Orange County residents who Uh, appeared in front of the Orange County Board of Supervisors in order to complain about masks. And they have a lot of explanations, uh, allegedly scientific explanations, for why masks are bad. It's a fairly amusing video and definitely an insight into the inner workings of the brains of your neighbors. And I was also amused that I have a number of neighbors who are posting on our Nextdoor website uh, proclaiming that wearing a mask uh, is bad for them and prohibited by their doctors because they have an underlying health issue. And they don't have to tell us what that health condition is. Uh, it's none of our business and they, their rights are protected and they don't have to tell us about that. So masks are uh, not everywhere, but even their not appearance is now political. And I was thinking that in the future, it might actually be kind of confusing to explain to uh, people who didn't live during this time, the images of the protesters during the Black Lives Matters protests, on which they have imprinted, I can't breathe, which we know is a very sad commentary on the last words of uh, George Floyd, who uh, died under such horrific circumstances, but in combination with the Orange County residents uh, claiming that masks are harmful to you and they keep you from getting oxygen, and then people running around with masks saying on them "I can't breathe," I can imagine that all of this could be very confusing to try and explain in the future. That, well, yes, I can't breathe, uh, doesn't actually refer to the coronavirus. Well. The masks actually are because of the coronavirus, but but anyway, you can imagine uh, what a challenge that's going to be. So anyway, back to the mask of the Red Death, and masks are also slightly ambiguous in this title. It was originally published with the spelling of mask, M-A-S-K. That's normally how we use it, and, and it does seem... Uh, as though that is appropriate for what the story is about. Maybe it has to do with uh, the hidden nature of death. Uh, It kind of has a double meaning. It was uh, published afterwards and became famous, which is how it's known today, with the spelling of mask, M-A-S-Q-U-E, which also has a little bit more significance uh, when you think that the story is about a masquerade ball. And so in that sense, uh, we do tend to spell the masks that people wear under those circumstances with the Q-U-E. It's also possible that the more exotic spelling uh, makes it seem more Gothic-like. And the story is Uh, recognized as an early gothic story. Uh, When it was published, it had the term a fantasy put after it, uh, which for that time was more likely to evoke gothic-type images instead of today what we think of as fantasy novels with their imaginary worlds and so forth. The story was originally published in the magazine uh, Graham's Ladies and Gentlemen's Magazine in 1842. Uh, it's not much of a lady's tale, as you'll see when we start to tell more of the story. It's inspired by another story that I want to go into in a little bit of detail here. That story is called The Castle of Otranto, and it was by Horace Walpole. And that story is considered the first Gothic novel and was published in uh, 1764. This Gothic literary style became very popular in the late uh, 18th and 19th century with uh, writers like Mary Shelley, Bram Stoker, Edgar Allan Poe, Georges de Murier. And this guy Walpole was fascinated with medieval history and even built himself a fake Gothic castle. And this uh, story is considered the first supernatural English novel and uh, very influential. It has elements of realistic fiction combined with supernatural and fantastical and many of the plot devices and character types that become kind of signature uh, items for Gothic novels, secret passages, clanging trap doors, uh, moving pictures, and doors opening and closing by themselves. The poet Thomas Gray told Walpole that the novel made, quote, some of us cry a little and all in general afraid to go to bed at nights. Anyway, it's a great uh, ripping story. I'll tell you the plot here and I'll just uh, ruin it with all kinds of spoilers because it is uh, quite a tale. Okay, so it's about a lord of a castle named Manfred, and the book opens on the wedding day of his son, Uh, but the son, unfortunately, gets crushed by a gigantic helmet that falls on him, and Manfred, his father, freaks out because there's an ancient prophecy that says that Otranto, the castle, will be taken away from the present family if the real owner should be grown, quote, too large to inhabit it, whatever that means. Okay, so he decides that the right thing to do is divorce his wife and then marry the woman that his son was going to marry, his son's fiancee, his name Isabella, uh, apparently because he thinks that she might be able to bear him some new heirs. Isabella, however, is not so keen, surprise, surprise, and she runs off uh, to hide out with a nice guy named Theodore. And Manfred says, Okay. Uh, now, I think Theodore should be killed. And so, but they went, they go to kill him. Uh, the local friar realizes that Theodore is actually his son. How this all happened, I'm sure, is explained in the novel, even though it seems a little weird. Okay, so the friar begs for Theodore's life. And Manfred says, okay, either give me the princess, or the uh, fiancé, who apparently he assumes that they're hiding. Um, Or I'm going to kill your son. And just then, a bunch of knights from another kingdom arrive, and they want Isabella, too. Uh, So everyone runs around searching for Isabella. Meanwhile, Theodore, who's been locked in a tower, uh, escapes and races off to find Isabella, and he finds her easily hidden in a cave. Then there's more fighting. Then they all go upstairs to work stuff out. (laughs) Which I love. (laughs) Sort of uh, conflict resolution in the middle of this uh, Gothic novel. Okay, so upstairs, uh, they decide, okay, we're going to work stuff out. Isabella's father, who was one of the knights who'd arrived to rescue her, uh, falls in love with one of Manfred's daughters. And so the two fathers say, okay, let's just swap. We'll each marry each other's daughters. Okay, okay. Uh, Manfred, though, is still super jealous because he thinks Isabella is still going to go hang out with Theodore because he likes her and he's a nice guy. So he sneaks into a church where he thinks they're going to meet, and when he encounters somebody there, he jumps out and stabs her, <laughs> which I guess means he's decided that he doesn't need heirs after all. Anyway, now it turns out he stabbed his own daughter. Uh, At this point, there is the most ludicrous conclusion of this tale that I will leave you to go look up and see if your eyes don't fall out of your head. Okay, so that was our first Gothic novel and was an inspiration to Mask of Red Death. And the Mask of the Red Death uh, features a prince whose name is uh, Prospero, He's kind of a Condeed kind of guy. You know, everything is for the best in all possible worlds. He's this happy-go-lucky guy. And he's got this big castle. And when the Red Death arrives, they decide to shut themselves up in the castle and weld their doors shut to keep the disease outside. And this dread disease, as we'll see right away, uh, is really quite horrific. Uh, So I'm going to read the beginning of the story here. And you'll see that Poe, unlike Jack London, who we talked about last week, actually gets right into the meat of the story right away. The red death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and lighthearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in, This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress or egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisatory, there were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there was beauty, there was wine. All these insecurity were within. Without was the Red Death." It was towards the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. So Poe goes on here to describe uh, the rooms of the castle. Uh, There were all different rooms in different colors and also a clock, a very huge ebony clock uh, that would sound each of the hours. And whenever the hour sounded, the musicians would stop playing, the dancers would stop dancing, and everyone would pause for a moment. So you can imagine the uh, scary setup that he has for uh, the arrival of another character who has been distinctly uninvited. And I'll read here how Poe has described him. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, there may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had out Herod, and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless, which cannot be touched without emotion— Even the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company indeed seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask, which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet all this might have been endured, if not approved, by the mad revelers around. But the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the red death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow, with all the features of the face, was besprinkled with the scarlet horror. As usual, the critics and literary analysts have tried to figure out what's going on with this story. It's a fairly common interpretation that this figure here is supposed to represent the inevitability of death. Uh, Poe himself might have objected to that. He Uh, allegedly objected to didacticism or interpretation of his writing in that way. And there might be kind of some reaching to it, but some people think that Prospero, the prince, uh, might represent a young Poe when he was benefiting from the wealth of his foster parents, the Allens, that we'll uh, talk about in a little bit. Regardless, the appeal of the story is absolutely huge. There have been a zillion adaptations and some radio readings, um, but it's really the comics that have gone crazy with the story. There have been dozens and dozens of stories that have been published that draw on the story. Uh, The American director Roger Corman made a movie with Vincent Price in 1964, and apparently there's a screenplay written by Akira Kurosawa, and there's been some discussion of making a movie out of that. Uh, Some really poignant parts of the story is that uh, Poe's wife was suffering from tuberculosis at the time that uh, he wrote the story. It's possible that tuberculosis made him think of the Red Death Uh, He had reason to be very afraid of that disease. His mother, his brother, and his foster mother had all died of tuberculosis. He had also witnessed the outbreak of cholera in 1831, and he could also have been thinking about the bubonic plague. Um, So, you know, back then there was a lot of these kinds of epidemics around you, so it wouldn't take a lot of imagination to think of this kind of uh, terrible disease descending on a city and how you might lock yourself into a castle to keep away from it. Some information about Edgar Allan Poe, uh, though I won't go into it in uh, great detail today, he's a very interesting figure and uh, worthy of another episode for sure. He was born in 1809 and died at the age of 40, like Jack London, who we talked about last week. Also under kind of uh, suspicious circumstances, wasn't quite clear if it was from alcohol or some other kind of disease or suicide even. He did make his living from writing. He was the first American to do so, although unlike Jack London, uh, he had not nearly as much success and had a lot of financial trouble during his life. And his adoptive parents... uh, Uh, paid for a lot of things and raised him, but he and his father ended up falling out over money, especially because of Poe's gambling debts and eventually the cost of his schooling. Poe went into the army uh, really as a last resort. He didn't do very well there uh, and still harbored hopes to become a poet and writer. And after he got out, his father uh, continued to fight and argue Uh, after his father married someone new, uh, after uh, Edgar Allan Poe's adoptive mother had died, and his father had some children out of wedlock outside of that new marriage. Anyway, lots of emotional, chaotic scenes. And Edgar Allan Poe ended up marrying his 13-year-old cousin. You've probably heard that in 1836, when uh, he himself was 26. And remember that he wrote The Red Mask then in 1842. He had a very remarkable life, very chaotic and troubled. Uh, Many biographers have talked about a lot of the sorrow and horror and death uh, featured in his writings might be from all the women who died uh, during his lifetime. His wife, Virginia, showed the first signs of tuberculosis or consumption, as it was called then, uh, one evening in 1842 before this story came out. And Poe describes a blood vessel breaking in her throat. He began drinking more after she got sick and uh, ended up moving to New York, uh, where uh, she eventually died in 1847 in a cottage that still exists and that you can visit in Fordham which is now part of the Bronx. The poem The Raven came out in 1845, and that was an immediate success and essentially made him a household name overnight. Uh, It also inspired much, much criticism and writing and analysis and reciting and all kinds of things. I'm sure The Raven has been part of your life, too. And it also inspired the name of the Baltimore Ravens, the football team, and Poe uh, actually was found on the streets of Baltimore and was uh, died in hospital there, and in fact was uh, buried there also. The medical records have been lost, but the newspapers at the time uh, described his cause of death as congestion of the brain or cer- cerebral inflammation, which might have been a euphemism for disreputable diseases such as alcoholism. And poor Poe, as though his life hadn't been troubled enough, his literary rival, uh, Rufus Wilmot Griswold, as if that isn't the name of a slimy character, wrote an obituary for Poe under a false name that was filled with lies and said that Poe was a madman and a lunatic. He eventually became Poe's literary executor and kept on working to ruin his reputation, basically, calling him depraved and a drug addict, even though there's not a lot of real evidence of that. He continued to write about Poe and used some of Poe's letters as evidence of his depravity. Uh, It turns out that those letters were forgeries, and Griswold eventually got Poe's mother-in-law to sign away the rights to his works. And so Uh, He continued to publish Poe's works along with his own invented uh, biographies emphasizing the drunkenness and immorality of Poe. So here's a question for you. For all of Poe's writing about horror during his lifetime, uh, could he have imagined that someone as evil as Griswold would exploit his work and haunt him after his death? And then uh, also Is it possible that Griswold, in fact, did him a favor, even though he ruined his personal reputation by making him into such a sensational author that we're all drawn to these gothic works and tales of horror and creating such a sensation around him uh, that he has developed this huge reputation? I don't know the answer to those questions. Uh, but I'm going to finish with the final lines from the Raven. And the Raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting, on the pallid bust of Pallas, just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul, from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor, shall be lifted, nevermore. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes, airing on Tuesday and Friday, and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on podomatic.com. And that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreetguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.